Welcome, everyone. Welcome back. Glad we were able to avoid the rain today and get you guys back here. Uh, welcome to week two of the Alpha Course. Okay, how many of you guys here for the very first time? Oh, that's great. Well, thank you guys for being here. How many of you who were here last week are not here this week? No, okay. Don't see any hands. All right. Well, uh, my understanding, I, and I may stand correct, are we doing CDs? Anybody? We are. Okay, so, so if, if you're interested, if you still do the CD things, I don't know if your cars have CDs anymore, but if you do CDs, we have CDs for you at the end of the evening. We'll have CDs of last week and this week, if your car can handle that. Or you can go to the Lakeview Christian Center YouTube site, and you can catch up with any weeks that you may miss. So we want to, we want, I just got happy. Okay, we... Um, we really want you to catch all that you can. I know that some, I've already heard that some people are sharing uh, these with friends of theirs. And so you can also watch live stream. I know that there's some folks watching live stream. You want to wave to the people that are watching live stream. Um, so uh, we just want to welcome you to take, take in all the class that you can. So for those of you guys who were not here last week, I'm Frank Loria. I'm not on staff here at Lakeview, but I'm one of the elders here. I have the privilege of being an elder here. My wife, Annette, and I, I swear, Sweetheart, would you wave at everybody just so they could see you again? There she is. So, um, <laughs> so uh, last week we were talking about uh, how can my life have meaning and purpose? And everybody wants to know how their life can have meaning and purpose. It doesn't matter how rich you are. Remember, if you were here last week, we went through the lives of several people, very successful, but said it wasn't all it was cracked up to be. We looked at Tom Brady. We looked at... Uh, Ted Turner, we looked at uh, Shia LaBeouf, we looked at, talked about a lot of people that no matter how much they had, there's still this hole in them. Shia LaBeouf talked about this God-shaped hole that he wished he could fill. So, and then we, then we talked a lot about faith, and typically when we think about faith, we think about faith, and think about, tell me if this isn't true of your life, just tell me, I'm, I'm talking to every one of you specifically. Um, don't we typically think of faith in a religious connotation? We typically do. See, but faith, as I said, is something we exercise all the time. And we don't always necessarily, it's not blind faith, right? There may be a lot of evidence to support what you believe. But faith is faith. It's not, it's not necessarily certain. And so we talked a lot about faith last week and uh, that faith is something we practice all the time. And we don't even know if we're going to make it back to our pillows tonight, do we? We're pretty sure that we will. We can't imagine not, but that's a chance we won't. Today on the planet, on planet Earth, 150,000 people thereabouts who woke up will not make it to the end of the day. They'll not make it back to their pillow. In the United States alone, 7,700 people will die today on, in the United States of America. Now, am I saying that to scare you? Yes, I am saying that to scare you. Just, uh, just, just get that down. Um, all I'm saying is life is not certain. Now, last week, what we talked about was this. So, you, and, and forgive me, those of you who know this, who could repeat it better than I can. I asked the question at the beginning of the evening, how many of you grew up, it's just a typical course of your life, reading the Bible, just kind of studying the Bible. And I had about maybe 10 hands go up. I think about 10 hands. And then I asked the question, there were 121 of us here last week. Then I asked the question, how many of you believe that there's something on the other side of your last heartbeat, that means when you die, that's going to last forever, 
and you think and you hope it's going to be good. And you remember what happened if you were here. Almost every hand in the room went up. Now, my question from that, and this is what carries us into Alpha, an introduction to the Christian faith, is why is it, and I, last week I used uh, Charles and, and Zach, and they did a great job, but I'm going to use this this week. So let's say this right here is physical life, and this here, this ruler, is life on the other side of your last heartbeat. It's something that's going to last forever. At least you believe that it's going to last forever, and you hope it's going to be good. I mean, could you imagine something forever not being good? So we don't want to think about that. So, but why do we spend so much time in this little bitty dash of life, spending so much time worrying about where we're going to go to school, what kind of car we're going to drive, uh, what we're going to, you know, uh, what kind of uh, savings account or investments when they last so little time? That doesn't mean we shouldn't be concerned about those things. But when it comes to this, that it's going to last a whole lot longer than this, well, we hope so. Um, if I'm going to die, I hope I'm going to die on a good day. It just doesn't make any sense for us to just put this in hope so. I mean, I hope I picked the right religion. Uh, I hope I'm believing the right thing. The question is, can I know that I'm believing the right thing? And that's the question. And that's why I hope you're here, is so that does life make sense just for this? When most all of us believe there's something on the other side of the last kathump that's going to last forever. Can we know what that is, or do we just hope, as I said, we die on a good day? And next week, we're going to really hit on this a lot harder. But tonight, we're going to talk about who is Jesus. Now, that may sound like a dumb question. Who is Jesus? Come on, I'm an American, for heaven's sake. Who doesn't know who Jesus is? Well, I didn't know who Jesus was. Maybe some of you here didn't know, and maybe still aren't really quite sure who Jesus is. You've got a church understanding. You're familiar with seeing a cross or a crucifix in the front of your church. Uh, you know you pray to Jesus. And I did all those things, but I did those without really having a biblical understanding of who he claimed to be. And so... I believed in a Jesus that did not exist. Uh, I created a fictitious character, and I named him Jesus Christ. But that Jesus was not to be found in the pages of the Bible at all. But when I was introduced to Jesus as a sophomore, 19-year-old sophomore at LSU, um, it wiped away my personal stereotyping conveniences of who I believed he was. And I became a Christ follower. That was 46 years ago. And my life completely changed and has been changing since then. But it was then, interestingly enough, that I began to study, well, what have I gotten myself into? I mean, I know I, I, know I had this experience with Christ and I feel different and I want to read the Bible. I, I, I got that. But is there any reason, is there any reason for me to have evidential faith in the person and the claims of Jesus Christ? What's the evidence? And I think as Americans, we want 
evidence. I think everybody wants evidence. Why do you believe that? And that's why we're here. Is there anything on the other side of my last heartbeat? And if so, can I know what it is? Can I be certain that on the, on, on the other side of my last heartbeat, I know where I'm going? Now, of course, it's by faith. But can we know? And, and will knowing this make the physical life a whole lot more sensible? And I would argue the only way to really make sense of this is to understand that life makes sense in the midst of all the suffering and all the challenges right now. If you know this with God, then this will make so much more sense. So much more sense. Again, I'm not going to argue that right now. I'm just asserting that. I'm not giving you any evidence for that. So don't believe it. Okay? Just, and I'm not, again, I'm not asking you to believe anything I'm telling you. Okay? But let's look for evidence. What does the Bible say? So tonight we're going to look a little bit more into what the Bible, is it rational? Should I believe this? And then in week five, we're going to do that a little bit more. But first, let's talk about this. Did Jesus, did a person actually walk the planet whose name was Jesus? Now, Jesus' last name was not Christ. Um, and his middle name was not H. That was not the middle initial for you if you're concerned about that. Whatever the H stood for. Heaven, I mean, Henry, I'm not sure what it would have been. But... So he was Jesus of Nazareth. He was Jesus bar Joseph. Jesus, Jesus son of Joseph. That's how earthly people would have seen him. But you know, there's no critical, no critically thinking, rational, unbiased historian who believes Jesus was a fable. If so, all other historical figures are brought into question. Caesar, Plato, Socrates, all of them are brought into question because there is so much historical fact behind the historical, the literal figure of Jesus. And we have many extra biblical accounts. We just don't have the Bible that says, well, the Bible says there's Jesus. Well, I don't care what the Bible says. What, what outside the Bible says that? So I'm just, just having, yeah, I see your book and your book is going to be biased to what you believe. Well, maybe it is and maybe it isn't. But the good news is we've got extra biblical accounts that show of a person of Jesus. We've got Roman historians, first century Roman historians. Maybe some of you may remember from your, his, your high school or college history. Josephus and Suetonius and Pliny. Uh, there were disciples that wrote outside of the scripture that talk of Jesus. There was Cornelius Tacitus who was the, considered the greatest Roman historian wrote the annals, and I just think, for some reason, does, does my nose, I mean, I know he's Italian, but do you see any familiarity here at all? Um, so, you don't? Thank you. But um, every, every rendering of him, whether it was a statue or a drawing, just what a snoz. I mean, he just really... But this is what, this is what Tacitus said. Try not to pay any attention to his nose now. Okay. Consequently, to get rid of the report... That he had Rome burned, that is Nero. Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations, called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of his procurators, Pontius Pilate. Now that lines up directly with scripture. So here is... Here is Cornelius 
Tacitus, who lived uh, between 56 and 120 AD, he's living, again, he's, he's living right after the death of Jesus, and he is gathering information, historical information, and writing of this man they called Christus because of this group of abominables. I guess that today they'd be deplorables, possibly. Um, so, so, so what about the Bible? How do we know the New Testament? If you look at this, how do we know that the New Testament, what we have now, I know some, we gave Bibles last week. How do we know that the New Testament that was written centuries ago is the same book that we have today? Now, I think that's a decent question. How do we know what I'm reading today was actually in the, fir the, the first parts of the first century and into the second century? Well, there is a science. And I want you to, if you open your uh, your manuals or your study guides to, to page 12 and grab a pen. Because I want you to, if you don't mind, I'd like you to write some of these things down if you don't mind. But there's a science called textual criticism. All right? Textual, not texting criticism, but textual criticism. I know a lot of texts need to be criticized. But textual criticism. Now, within the science of textual criticism... Um, there is a body called, within textual criticism, called the bibliographical test. So certain tests within, within te the, um, the science of textual criticism called the bibliographical test. Okay, so right, textual criticism, biblical, uh, pardon me, bibliolog bibliographical test. Now, within bibliographical tests, there are three, three areas of study. Okay, one is the quantity of manuscripts. So just write down quantity. Now, when we talk about manuscripts, we're talking about handwritten manuscripts. Okay, something that before Gutenberg's press in the 1400s, we're talking about, man, that's the word, manu, hand, okay, scripts, writing, handwriting. So the bibliographical text, test, part, part one is the quantity of manuscripts. How many manuscripts do we have existing today? Okay. Then we have the quality of manuscripts. And that doesn't necessarily mean what kind of shape it's in. The quality means, does manuscript 1 look like manuscript 2, look like manuscript 10, look like manuscript 7? Are they saying the same things or are they contradictory? That's the quality. Quantity, number of them. Quality, is there consistency in the copies? And then the third is the time span. So the time span between the original autograph the original writing and the copies that have been made, the manuscripts that have been made. So the manuscripts are the copies. The original autograph is the person that actually penned the, the writing. So number of copies, consistency of copies, and the time span between the original and the handwritten copies in the manuscripts. Okay, So that's the bibliographical test. So let's look at this. Let's just take a look at some writings of history by known historians uh, and see how those may jibe with or compare to the New Testament, right? So here is Herodotus. Herodotus was a Greek historian. He wrote of the Greco-Persian Wars. He wrote between 488 and 428 BC. The earliest copy we have is AD, 9, AD not 89, AD 900, there's a time span between 1300, of 1,300 years between when he wrote and when we have the copies. 
Hey, this is fascinating. If you all want to take a nap right now, I don't blame. Just go right ahead. This is in the material. So, I, um, so and we have 117 existing. Extant is a, just a fancy word for existing copies. All right. So that's 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 him. Greco-Persian Wars, big deal. People make a lot of it. Nobody questions the reality of it, even though we have 1,300 years between the original autograph. So we got Thucydides. He was a Greek historian. Wrote about the Peloponnesian Wars, 460 to 400, about the same time. 900 uh, was when we see the first copy. 1,350 years. We have 104 copies of his. Now, some of these have been updated, so they may not be updated in your manual. So some of these numbers I've updated by doing a little bit more research. Um, then we've got Livy or Livy or Levy. I'm not sure. But he's a Roman historian, wrote the history of Rome between 59 B.C., A.D. 17, living at the same time as Jesus. Earliest copy, A.D. 400's time lapse. We've got a 400-year time lapse. And the extant manuscripts, we've got 169 of those. So you're getting, you're getting this. We're getting about the same number of copies. Um, now then there's, um, there's Homer. We have his Homer's. <laughs> this, I'm sorry. Forgive me. Okay, it's, uh, not, not this Homer. Okay. That, that Homer. Okay. So um, now Homer, we've, that's been updated considerably. So you're going to have some corrections to do there. But um, he wrote the Iliad. Remember the Iliad and the Odyssey? I was supposed to read those. I'm sure I got the cliff notes. Um, so um, Greek poet, Iliad, which is basically the Trojan War, wrote 800 BC, earliest copy 400 BC. So we've got 400 year time lapse. We've got up to 1,757 handwritten copies now. That number's been updated considerably. So let's look at those and compare those to the New Testament. New Testament, which is the testimony of Jesus Christ in the history of the church, was written between AD 40, 40 and 100. The earliest manuscript we have, we have partial manuscripts at AD 130. Some say that we've got fragments of the Gospel of John at 75, but I... I I'm not sure about that. We have full manuscripts dating 350. We have time lapse between 40 years from the original manuscripts. The, the existing manuscripts we have are 23,986. The accuracy, okay, so remember quantity and then quality, okay? Quality is accuracy at 99.5%. And that 0.5% has nothing to do with the teachings of the New Testament. It may be grammar or sentence construction. And so we see just, just with the bibliographical test, the New Testament, whether you want to believe it's the word of God or not, and we've got many other things we can talk about with that, um, hands down, historically, according to the textual tests that historians put ancient documents to, head and shoulders above the rest. And so, kind of some fascinating stuff. So, and so, it's interesting that the New Testament is written at the same time that people that were living during the time of Jesus were there and could have said, that ain't true, that didn't happen. So you can't really set up, a lot of people think this is all legend, but when you've got manuscripts that are that close in time to the people that are still living, you, you just can't pull that off. Whereas if you got hundreds of years, who really knows? 
And so the New Testament shows itself historically to be a, a phenomenally accurate. Obviously, for some reason, it's copied thousands of times. This is just what we have existing today by many people that were still alive when the documents were not only written, but being circulated. Now, F.F. Bruce, who was a professor of New Testament uh, studies at Manchester University, he wrote this. He says, it was not friendly witnesses. He has a book, by the way. His book was called The New Testament Documents, Are They Reliable? He says, it was not friendly witnesses that the early preachers had to reckon with. There were others less well-disposed who were also conversant with the facts and the ministry of the death of Jesus. The disciples could not, now catch this, the disciples could not afford to risk inaccuracies, not to speak willful manipulation of the facts, which would at once be exposed by those who would not, would be only too glad to do so. On the contrary, one of the strong points in the original apostolic preaching is the confident appeal to the knowledge of the hearers. They not only said, we are witnesses of these things, but also as you yourselves know. Had the tendency been to depart from the facts in any material respect, the possible pressure of hostile witnesses in the audience would have served as a further corrective. But just the opposite happened. And in 300 years, we see Christianity pouring into the Roman Empire. And we see Constantine seeing that Christianity has won. And the result of that is because the Romans saw Christians caring for their own, caring for them, caring for others that didn't care for them. And it, the love of Christianity won the day and won Rome. So let's dive a little bit more specifically into some of the Bible claims. On page 14, if you want to turn there with me, I'm just going to just touch on this. The Bible makes very clear that Jesus came as a man. Now, again, you may not want to believe any of this. And, and let me just say that for those of you here for the first time, because I, I said this several times last week. I'm not asking you to believe me. I'm not asking you to believe the Bible. But so many of us, just like me, are Bible illiterate. I, don't, I couldn't tell you what was in it. When I was a boy, I just remember putting my hand on a, 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 a little Catholic, I think it was, a little missile. I don't know why it was called a missile. It didn't go anywhere. It just sat there. Um, but And just telling God, I'm only going to sin five more times. Well, by the end of the day, we're, working, we're reworking the contract because I just, I just didn't do real well with that. But I knew that there was a God, but I knew nothing about him. And so, so these are just some tips from the scripture that I, I, I hope what you'll do is as you look at this, as I have to run through some things, you'll look at this more closely. So the Bible declares that Jesus was fully human. I think you see that in your book, that he had a human body, that he got tired. He was hungry. And there's some scriptural references that you can go to and look at that. He had human emotions, anger, love, sadness. He had human experiences. He was tempted. He learned. He worked. He obeyed. He was obedient. See? Um, and I, I, but what did he have to say about himself? What did he say about himself? What, do, what is recorded that Jesus said about himself? Well, let's just take a look at this. One of these scriptures we looked at last week. 
This is John 6, 35. If you were here last week, you remember this. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. I've underscored these. This is not how it's in the scripture. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Okay, pen in hand, because I want us to understand. We, I just, you just have a tendency of reading through this and just not really paying much attention to it. If the Bible is true, and if Jesus is who he says he is, then we may want to pay attention to this. If he's not, if he's just a fable, if this is all a lie, who cares? It's just some interesting information that you can forget in a few minutes. But he said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Right, if you will, just right next to that, because this is what he's saying. He fills our emptiness. He fills that issue in question of meaning and purpose. He says, he's making quite a claim here. Just an amazing claim that he himself will fill that God-shaped hole that Shia LaBeouf is talking about. John 8, 12, in the Gospel of John, the 8th chapter, the 12th verse, he says, not only I'm 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 the bread of life, and I'm, I will quench your thirst. He says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. He's saying he's the light of the world. In other words, he gives direction. That's what he's saying here. He says he gives our lives direction and purpose. So just, if you would, if you want to, just write that down. He's the light. You're not going to walk in darkness where you trip over a lot of stuff and get hurt, he said, you'll have the light of life. He will give direction for life. That's the claim that he makes for himself. Then in Matthew, it's recorded that Jesus says this, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. That's quite a statement, isn't it? it? He is saying, this guy, of all the billions and billions of people that have ever walked on the planet, he says, "Uh, come to me. Come to me, and I will give you rest. He didn't say, go to church. He didn't say, just be a good boy and say your prayers. He says, come to me. Now, again, I think church is great. Prayers are great. All that's great. But he is saying, he is the middle of all that. Since church without him, or praying without him, is without him. And he's saying, we need him, because he's come to give us a relationship with him. That's the claim that he makes. True or false? That's the claim he makes. Come to me. Weary? Heavy burden? You're answering that question right now in your hearts. I wish I could see your brains. Oh, okay. I can't see a few of them. Okay. Weary? Burden? I will. He's saying, okay, to me. Do you see this? I keep underlining this. To me. I. Of me. Take my yoke upon you. He's not talking about eggs here. You guys are smart enough to know that. He's talking about the oxen, the yoke that an oxen would bear with another oxen. He says, my yoke is easy. Take, take my yoke upon you, learn of me, for I'm gentle and humble of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Quite a, quite a statement. Can I take him up on that? Only if it's true. Only if it's true. What is he saying? He says, His claim is this, I will give the one, and in this next scripture, you'll see this, I will give you peace, I will give you belonging, and I'll always be with you. You'll never be alone. Okay, those are, that's the, those are these 
outrageous statements he is making. Peace, belonging. That's a, belonging is an interesting word, don't you think? I belong. I'm not an outcast. I belong. That's a strong thought. And never alone. Maybe lonely, but never alone. In the Gospel of John, the 11th, you may hear this at a lot of funerals, by the way. Jesus said, I am, okay, let me just back this up. I'm going to be so over time tonight. Jesus, um, his best friend, one of his best friends, Lazarus, has died. He has gone, he is going to be there with Lazarus' sisters, Martha and Mary. He's with Martha, one of the sisters, when he says this, because Martha's saying, if you'd have been here, this wouldn't happen. And Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Then he asks her, do you believe this? Okay. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And he who believes in me will never die. Now, death in the Bible does not talk about necessarily physical death, though it does talk about physical death. It talks about spiritual death. Jesus told Adam and Eve, or Adam, the day you eat of this fruit, the tree of this fruit, you shall surely die. Well, at that moment, he didn't drop dead. He was going to do that in a few years. But his relationship with God died at that moment because he chose himself. And when he chose himself, he chose against God. But Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies and we all die. And he who believes in me on the other side of your last heartbeat, he's saying, you will live and continue to live forever. That's the claim. True or false? That's the claim. But then he asks this question, which I think is a fascinating question for every one of us. Do you believe this? Do you really believe this? Do you believe it with your head? Do you believe it with your lips? Or do you believe it with every bit of you? That's the challenge of being a quote unquote, uh, uh, of course I'm a Christian. I, I'm, not a, I'm, I'm, I'm not a Hindu. I'm not a Buddhist. I'm, I'm born in America for heaven's sake. Of course I'm a Christian. No, not necessarily. Not according to Jesus. So what is he saying here? Listen to this. This statement he is saying, I will give you eternal security with God. Quite a statement, don't you think? All of these, you notice every statement, I am the resurrection. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. He keeps making all these statements about himself. It's interesting because all of Jesus' teaching, I don't know if you paid attention to this or not, but all of Jesus' teaching centers around himself. Now, if you take any other religion in the world, whether it's Islam or Buddhism or any other religion, those teachers, their teachings do not center on themselves. Their teachings focus on things you should do. Keep their teaching. Keep the rules. Keep the commandments. Now, if you remove... Krishna, Buddha, 
Muhammad, Zoroaster, any other of these religious figures, their religion is still intact. Okay, you with me? You can, t- you can take away, you can put any other name in their place because you, what you're doing is you're, you're keeping the rules, whatever the rules of those particular faiths may be. But if you take Jesus out of Christianity, you have no Christianity because he doesn't say, my teachings will get you resurrected and give you life. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. He's saying everything about life is because, remember Jesus last week, we said, Jesus stated in John 14, I am the way and I am the truth and I am the life. Now, he either is or he isn't. It's either true or it's not true. And those are the things we're talking about. But did he really claim, does the Bible say that Jesus really claimed to be God? Well, the Bible does say that. Let's first look at an indirect claim. And if I have time, we'll look at a direct claim. Jesus has gone back to his hometown with his disciples. The city of Capernaum had become their hometown. As Jesus is in this little house, the house becomes completely crowded with people. I mean, these houses were not very big, not a whole lot of rooms. And as he's coming in there, there are these four guys on the outside of the house. Maybe you've heard this story. And they, these four friends want to take their friend who is paralyzed. He's on a bed and they want to get him in to see Jesus, but nobody's giving him any room. It's like a New Orleans traffic jam. Nobody is giving this guy any room to get in. And so what do they decide to do? Well, there's stairs on the outside of the house. So they carry him up the stairs and begin to take the roof apart. Can you imagine being the lady of the house? And your roof is coming apart and they lower him in front of Jesus. House is crowded. This guy must be feeling, I mean, if you can imagine yourself, you're that person and you're being lowered down here. You're interrupting the teaching. And Jesus knows why he's there. And he says to him this. Now, you know why he's there, right? He's there to get unparalyzed. Well, Jesus is there to unparalyze him in a couple of ways. He says to him. Now, imagine yourself being the paralytic. And this is what you're about to hear from the guy, you know, has been healing people all over the place. (laughs) This is not what you wanted to hear. Well, make me. It's not the first thing you want to hear. He says, son, your sins are forgiven you. Okay. Now, when Jesus says that, there are some religious leaders there that were not friendly to Jesus. They were called Pharisees or Sadducees or scribes. These were the religious leaders and they were also business leaders as well. And they were the the muckety mucks of the Jewish faith. And it says that Jesus, knowing their thoughts, because they were saying, who is this guy that forgives sin? Who does he think he is? It says, Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said to them, what is easier for me to say to him, rise up and walk or your sins are forgiven? And then he really did it. And he really stuck, stuck his foot in it. He said, but so that you may know that the son of man has power to forgive sin. I say to you, and he looked down at the the paralytic and said, rise, take up your bed and walk. And the Bible says immediately this paralyzed man jumped up to his feet 
took his bed and people made room for him then. <laughs> now, when Jesus says your sins are forgiven, he's making an indirect claim to being God. And every one of those Jews knew that. And they didn't care for that at all. But here's the interesting thing. If Jesus is going to forgive his sins, how are his sins going to be forgiven? See, if you and I would have been there, we could have said your sins are forgiven all day long. But none of us is going to go, uh, rise, take up your bed and walk. Right? Who's <laughs> going to be stupid enough to say that? But when Jesus says your sins are forgiven, something's going to have to happen to pay for those sins. And he backs up his statement of your sins are forgiven by saying, rise, take up your bed and walk. And we're going to see what happens and how Jesus could say your sins are forgiven. Direct claim in, in John 8. I don't know that I've got this or not. No, I don't. Okay. Um, John 8, 56 through 58, if you want to write that down. He's, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees again. And he says to them, before Abraham was born. Now, again, remember Abraham's a, before even Moses is Abraham. He's the father of faith. And Jesus says to these religious leaders, before Abraham was born, I am. That's what he said. That's what it's recorded that he said. When he says, before, Jesus, before Abraham was born, I am, they know immediately what he's saying. Because they know the name of God is I am. So when Moses, let's go back several thousand years. When Moses is met by God in a burning bush. And God says, hey, I want you to go to Egypt. And I want you to tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And Moses is going, uh, are you sure about this? Who am I going to say has sent me? Because there's a big deal with names then. Names don't mean as much today as they used to. God says, tell them, tell him, I am that I am. And so when Jesus says, before Abraham was born, I am, he's making a direct, direct claim, associating himself with and as God. And what did they do when he did that, said, said that? And they took up stones to stone him. They understood that he was saying God in the flesh. All right, well, let's just cut to the chase here. He either was or he wasn't God come in the flesh, right? I mean, just, let's just think about this. There's a little decision tree analysis here. Jesus claimed to be God. According to the Bible, Jesus claimed to be God. Now, let's just think about this for a moment. You're, you're, you're all thinking people. Uh, it's either true or false, right? His claim is either true or his claim is false. If it's false, he either knew it or he didn't know it. We're good? Well, let's say he, he knew it. He was a liar. If he knew that he was not God but claimed to be, and he's fooling all these people, he was a liar. Not only that, he was a hypocrite. Because he kept came professing, I am the way, I am the truth. He says, truly, truly, I say to you. I mean, everything he's saying, he is the bastion of truth. But if he knew he was lying, he was a liar. And not only that, he was a hypocrite. He wasn't even a politician. If not only a hypocrite, he was a demon. Because he's saying, I'm the way to heaven. 
Hey, I'm the way. On the other side of your last heartbeat, you're going to have life, but you're really not. That's what, he's a demon. He's deceiving them. He's saying, I'm the way, but really, that's the way. But this is the way I want you to go. If he knew it, he was a liar, a hypocrite, a demon. Not only this, he was a fool. He was a fool. Why was he a fool? Because he died for a lie knowing it was a lie. Think about that. Are you going to die for a lie knowing it's a lie? I hope not. People die for lies believing it's true. Happens all the time. But I hope you don't die for a lie knowing it's a lie. Well, maybe he didn't know it. Maybe he just had some kind of Napoleonic, pre-Napoleonic complex. Possibly. Well, if he didn't know it, he was nuts. He was a lunatic. He was out of his mind. He really thought he was who he wasn't. We know people like that, don't we? We work with people like that, don't we? They're our bosses for the most part. If you are a boss here, this is how they think about you. I know this. Um, But there was never a man that stood in the face of such scrutiny and persecution and changed not one bit. He was sincerely deluded. If he was a lunatic, he really thought he was who he wasn't. But there's nothing in the writings or in history, extra biblical, that shows anything but this man being the calmest, consistent picture of peace as he was. Nice claim, just no evidence. It's interesting what C.S. Lewis says. I think on page 16 of your manual, you've got a little bit of a shortened version. I don't know if you want to look there because I'm going to give you the whole version of this from C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. C.S. Lewis wrote this. He said, a man who was merely a man, again, follow this with everything we've been talking about. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. Did you get that? We don't have that. He's, if, he's, if he's a liar or he's nuts, he's not a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. I guess I'd make him a deviled egg. <laughs> Sorry. You, you, mu- you must, you must stop these stupid jokes. You must make, you must make your choice. Okay. He'd either be a lunatic. Okay. Or else he'd be the devil of hell. You've got to choose, is what he's saying. Remember, Lewis was, a, Lewis was a rank atheist. He didn't believe any of this. And he was compelled by the sheer evidence that this, this man could not be anything other than the Son of God. He said, you must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can sh- I love this. You can shut him up for a fool... You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Wow. Was he or wasn't he? I think Lewis has made a pretty strong point here, but that's for you to decide. What if he 
He is Son of God, God come in the flesh. He's Lord. He's either liar, lunatic, or Lord. We've already seen that he wasn't legend. That's just not possible. It's not, it's not, it's not plausible. And if he is Lord, then there is this, another decision that rests in your and my lap if this is true. I either reject that and have to come up with something of who he is somewhere in here, or I accept that. It's a fascinating thought, just historically speaking. So what evidence supports what Jesus allegedly claimed? Well, his teachings, his miracles, his character, Old Testament prophecies, we're going to get into that in week five. Yeah, these are pieces of evidence, pieces of evidence. But here it is. The linchpin of Christianity is this. Christianity rises and falls upon one piece of evidence. One piece of evidence. Did he come out of the tomb alive on that first Easter day? If not, Christianity is a farce. It is not to be believed it is dangerous. It has led billions of people into whatever. But certainly not the truth, certainly not the way, and certainly not the life. Christianity rises and falls on whether or not this guy came up out of the ground, out of the grave, on what we call the first Easter morning. The Apostle Paul remember, Paul, if you know this at all, Paul was not a follower of Christ. As a matter of fact, he was a persecutor of Christians. He was a zealot as a Jew. He was out on a mission to round up all the Christians, to kill them, to imprison them, to do everything he can until on his road, on his way, to round up some more Christians. Jesus stopped him in his tracks in Acts chapter 9. Now, that's what's recorded. And Paul, Saul, his name was Saul of Tarsus, became Paul, the apostle of Jesus Christ. This is what Paul writes. This is fascinating because it's coming from a person that hated everything about Christus. He says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what was also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And then he appeared to Cephas, that is Peter. Then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom, catch this, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep, meaning they've died. He goes on to write this. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. If only in this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. If there is no resurrection from the dead then not even Christ has been raised. That's pretty serious. 
Wouldn't you say? So if he's raised from the dead, what does that mean for me? And why should I even believe he was raised from the dead? Now, look, many have tried to explain away his resurrection. But what most agree is there was no body in that tomb on that first Easter morning. And the argument is habeas corpus. Show me the body. Where is the body? Now, there are, and you'll see in your, in your um, manual on page 17, if you want to look there, then where was he? And what happened? Well, many people would argue that the women, it was dark in the morning, they went to the wrong tomb. Well, if women went to the wrong tomb, all the guards that were placed there, the Praetorian guard the, that was placed there would have had to do was, some, pardon me, ma'am, you're... you're you need to go one more down. That, that mausoleum is just around the corner there where you can find him. But that didn't happen. Maybe the disciples stole the body. Maybe that's what happened. They overcame the guard. Now, remember, they had just taken off. All of them were gone, scattered, afraid for their lives. But they came. They overtook the guard. They rolled the stone away. They took his body. And they made off with him. And they acted like he was resurrected because they were trying to make a few dollars out of this deal. I don't know what they were trying to do. But does that make any sense that every one of them to the man would die for what they knew was a lie, a lie they perpetrated themselves? I don't think so. Or maybe the Jewish officials stole the body. They were so concerned about the zeal of all these Christ followers. They won't have a riot. So what they did was they took his body away so that couldn't happen. The, the followers of Jesus show up. The tomb is open. His body's gone. He must be raised. And they go gallivanting around. He's raised, he's raised, he's raised. Well, if you're a Jewish official, what are you going to do? Go, oh, he's raised, he's raised, he's raised. No, you're going to show him the body. No, we did this because we knew you people would try to do this. Maybe he didn't die at all. He just swooned. He just died on the cross. looked like he died on the cross. They took him down. And in the cool of the tomb, he recovered. Nobody, no one ever survives crucifixion. Uh, for you guys tonight, if you'd like, um, there is an American Medical Association article. Um, American Medical Association published this on the physical death of Jesus Christ. It's in the AMA journal many years ago. It's a fascinating article. If you'd like an electronic copy of that, you can just email me at frank at lakeviewchristiancenter.com, get you an electronic copy of that. But we've got some handwritten cop, handwritten, <laughs> got some printed copies tonight. We didn't handwrite those. Um, so, but no one survives crucifixion. Crucifixion is the easy part, if you will, though it's not the easy part. You are whipped at least 39 times, naked, strapped to a pole with a whip, a leather whip with bones and, and metal. And you are whipped across the back and the buttocks and your, and your flesh becomes ribbons. They then put a crown of thorns. I don't know if you've ever seen the size of these. These are not a little rose bush thorns. They're these, this big and they press them into the flesh. What Jesus went through was, was totally against Jewish law. He was, he was 
captured, taken in at night, a kangaroo court, one in the morning. He doesn't sleep. He is beaten. He is flogged. He is taken before Pilate on two occasions. He is completely left by his followers. Those who were laying down palm leaves one moment were saying crucify him the next because he was not the deliverer of the Jews as he was supposed to be. He was not going to deliver them from Rome. And that's what they wanted. They wanted a temporary fix. See, many have tried to explain away the resurrection and they just couldn't. I brought a couple of books here um, just to show you real quickly. For each of you tonight, if you'd like a copy of More Than a Carpenter, Josh McDowell, um, he went to a, uh, a college um, up in, I think, Indiana. He kept giving Christians what for. He didn't believe it. So he was challenged. Okay, Josh, you don't believe it? Then prove us wrong. Well, Josh McDowell has traveled the world giving one talk after another about the historical relevancy of the Bible and the historical truths surrounding the scriptures and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Frank Morrison was a British journalist. He wrote this, uh, wrote this book he taught called Who Moved the Stone? And I love, I love the first chapter of this book. Can you see that? It says, um, I can't see that from right here. It says, the book that refused to be written. He started out to write a book against the resurrection. And the first chapter of the book is the book that refused to be written. Uh, Lee Strobel will give you guys a copy of his book last week the same way. He was uh, chief legal editor for the Chicago Tribune. He set out on an, a journalist, investigative journalistic tour all over the world to interview as many people as he could. And he left an agnostic and he came back as a follower of Jesus Christ. All that's interesting. So many have wrestled with the question tonight, who is Jesus? This question has echoed through the canyons of time and landed right here tonight where each and every one of us is in the hearing of each and every one of us. And the question is this, the question of the resurrection of Jesus and who he is, is the question that he is asking directly to each and every one of us tonight. Listen to this from Matthew 16, and I'll be closing. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you? Who do you say that I am? Now imagine just tonight that you were asked that question. People said he was a lot of things. But Jesus asked them specifically, who do you say that I am? And that is the question each and every one of us, if what the Bible says is true, 
must answer. He is either Lord or liar or lunatic. And if we say that he is Lord, then what are we going to do about that? According to him, if, we, if, if one says someone is Lord, they follow the one they call Lord. If Jesus is the resurrected Son of God, if that is truth, what am I going to do about that with my life? Will it just be my intermittent church attendance? Or hoping that I'm good enough that he'll let me in on that day when I, my heart beats its last? Well, next week, our topic is this. Why did Jesus die? When I saw this, I just want you to know, I had no idea, really, really, why he died. I had some general sense, but I had no idea what the Bible said. And I really would love for you to come back next week. Because I think next week and the following week are just two of the most important weeks that we will have together. And why did Jesus die? And how can I be sure of what I believe? And so... Please join us next week, and we'll get back into this. So look, let's do this. Let's take a quick break, get back to our tables. We'll have some time to visit together. If you've got kids, we're going to have to – kids are uh, getting picked up at 8.30. If you, if you don't have any kids to deal with, you can just stay a little bit till about 8.45, okay? Thank you guys so much for coming. Great to have you here.